Welcome to the Dirty Lie Podcast, a podcast about facts, figures, and weird things from the past. I'm your host, Des. And I'm your co-host, TMT. Wow, haven't done that in a while, have we? It's been a couple of weeks. It has actually been a while. Um, we missed you guys. We had the live show last week. It went swimmingly. It was absolutely fantastic. This one got up and walked around the stage with Mr. Shupo Shashore essay and it was a thing to behold. It's a lot of fun actually. This week we're gonna do the same topic we did at the live show. A little bit different but same topic basically. Just for the people who missed it. For the people who missed it and even if you were at the live show there'll be some things we talk about today that we didn't get a chance to touch on at the show so you should it's gonna be a good one i think welcome back to the dirty life podcast it's world mental health day how are you feeling today chipper 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 that's good how are you how about you I'm okay like i woke up in a uh i woke up i felt like i was in a fishbowl i had a lot of anxiety this morning we pushed through and we're here i'm proud of you well done thank you proud of everyone who pushes through whatever they deal with every day so let's get into this week's topic this week we're talking about when nigeria was a country when nigeria was the big brother when nigeria was the big brother of africa you know the next big brother is going to be nigeria and south african contestants in the same house isn't that every big brother no like usually it's just nigerians in the house or just south africans in the house you have big brother nigeria and big brother south africa but they're doing one is like combined mm. so like half the contestants will be south african mm-hmm. and half the contestants will be the nigerian. winners of the show yeah huh what <laughs> <laughs> he said the other half will be the winners well we're talking about nigeria and south africa today so today's facts let's go number one in 1962 nelson mandela came to nigeria while hiding from the south african police and he stayed here for nearly six months in the house of Mother BK Amici, the oh, aviation minister at the time. Yes. So the Nigerians hid Mandela and he went back to South Africa and then he was arrested shortly after he got back. Well, they didn't even waste time. No, they didn't. Thanks to the CIA. Of course. <laughs> Yeah, the CIA, by the way, had a hand in Mandela's arrest, in case anyone has forgotten. Of course they did. They literally helped the South African police find him. So that's number one. What's number two? Number two. In 1978, during the um, apartheid in South Africa, Mm. Nigeria was one of the key supporters of black South Africans who were under white minority rule. And because of this, we said that we were going to boycott south african businesses you're gonna you know boycott south africa 100 percent. nobody can do business if you want to do business with nigeria you cannot do business with south africa so in 1978 barclays bank of the uk decided to buy 150 million dollars worth of south african government bonds so nigeria kicked them out of the country like with immediate effects all the oimbos that were working in the office in their office had to get out of the country and they nationalized the bank and so what was barclays bank in 1978 nigeria is now the union bank of nigeria okay and the third fact is that during world war ii nigerian soldiers 
played a key role in the liberation of Paris from Nazi forces. They fought along the French Free Army and helped free Parisians from Nazis. From evil Nazis. Evil. I like na- I like what Nazis represent because you know how I feel like you know history is always subjective and it's always like no one's really good or bad in war but Nazis were like just bad yeah, yeah. Like you, you like you can just say they were bad guys. you're a bad guy you even have like really racist terrible people today and then you call them a Nazi and they yeah. have the same ideologies yeah. as the Nazis yeah and you call them a Nazi and they're like you're going too far <laughs> You're like okay, relax. I might be a KKK member, but I'm not say. My Nazi, calm down. Yeah, I mean they did try and exterminate the Jews. Yeah, so. that's why people like Indiana Jones movies so much because all the bad guys were always Nazis. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I mean, because if you think about it, his job is so problematic. He goes from country to country, unearthing people's culture and their ruins, and he takes it to America University. So his job is extremely problematic. But you don't mind that because he's still he's fighting against nazis as he's doing it so who is the youth that does not mind that because i have never enjoyed that indiana jones movie oh they're amazing films really, i am really a hater films. my mom like really likes them when i was growing so up. good i like vaguely remember having to sit in front of the tv and just consume them dstv also really liked them. yeah dstv likes them TV dstv loves readers <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i can never yeah. i can't tell you i've enjoyed one movie Okay, so what's true was Mandela hiding in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Did we kick out Barclays Bank and made it make a union bank? Yeah. Or were Nigerians playing a key role in Paris, World War II? Um, I think we kicked out Union Bank, but I don't think... Uh, uh, sorry, I think we kicked out Barclays Bank, but I don't think it became Union Bank. I think it became Kuda Bank. I think that's uh-huh. the f- I think that's the fact. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh. I think that's the fact. Huh, hilarious. <laughs> oh my god. That was so funny. I was at the live show. I know the actual fact this time. I know. Yeah. I know. So yeah. just so, tell them what the lie is. Um, the lie is that Nigerians played a pivotal part in the liberation of Paris. It was actually French West Africans. I'm no, sure. I'm not sure. French West Africans. So. What? French, Bla- French Africans. It wasn't just West Africans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, French. Fair. I said Nigerians West African. Yeah, but they just call it Senegalese Trivaliers, but it also but it had Senegalese, Beninois, Togolese, Chadians, it's Central African Africa. Republic. Oh, Central African Republic. Mali. The Algerians also played a role in the Yeah, but Algerians French aren't really black. But they're not black, no no no. Yeah. They they weren't even called Senegalese Trivaliers. They were giving their own Berbers. But they they separated them racially. Like even the the North Africans were separated from the South what do they call us? South Saharan. Sub- Sub sub Saharan Africans. Yeah, so the black Africans and the Arab Africans are separated. Okay. So uh, we'll call them black Africans? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would say that's more accurate. Okay. So that's the lie. So I just want to say like I think Mr. Shash is gonna listen to this episode and he's gonna just be like Adiso and this her agenda. For anyone who was at the live show, you already know that Mr. Shash and I have different we interpret history differently. Sometimes we have different philosophies which guides how we read our sources. The when and the how is the same. The why is often different. Yes. So I'm just going to talk about apartheid. Apartheid is a racial system that started in South Africa in 1948. This is really important because South Africa was always racially divided, Mm. segregated. Black people were 
oppressed since white people touched the cape but apartheid as a systematic violence against black people started in 1948 it had a start date thankfully it also had an end date which is 1994 when nelson mandela became south africa's first black president mm. but this system started in 48 and nigerians who we went over nigerians then when it started this is 12 years for independence but africans all over the continent were like white minority rule in southern africa is a huge problem it was separate from the colonial problems that western african countries were facing it was different from the settler colonial problems that kenyans were facing because they had Kenyans Ken- and Australians and Yeah, but like Kenyans had it really bad in just that there was a huge huge white population there. And Kenya was a settler colony in a way Nigeria could not be. Mostly because partly because as we've said before malaria yellow fever uh, white people could just not really survive here so yeah this system of apartheid in south africa you had white minority rule in south africa you had it in what was then rhodesia and is today zimbabwe you had portuguese rule in angola you know like in uh, what's that what's that place what place the cape verde can you sell that amilcar anyways you had different types of oppression happening all over africa like even the north africans are really having it algeria was really having it with the french libya was having it with the italians it was all going on on the continent nigeria gets its independence in 1960 as we all know first of october 1960 and in march of that same year you have the sharpeville massacre happen in south africa this is when south african police open fire on on hundreds of unarmed black men, women and children and they kill tens of unarmed black men, women and children. This has a role in radicalizing people against the apartheid regime, right? So this happens in 1960. Nigeria has become independent. We have what you would describe as anglophile does at that point in time they quite like their ex-colonial masters. Nigeria has not really completely separated itself from England at this point in time. The pound is still our reserve currency. We're still buddy buddy with the queen. Anyways. Yeah. All these things considered, Nigeria is part of the Commonwealth with our brothers who had gotten their independence a little bit earlier. Ghana. Lovely t- lovely lovely brothers in Ghana. People tell me I look Ghanaian by the way. Take it as a compliment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wish you saw this first face just now. I'm, I'm so happy that people talk. I love Kenyan so much. Anyways, Nigeria and Ghana especially help to lead this movement that ends up with South Africa essentially kicked out of the Commonwealth, but they were forced to resign from the Commonwealth in 1961. So this is just a year after we come we become independent. We're already fighting white South African Asan. We're already part of this anti-apartheid movement. 1962 Nelson Mandela visits Lagos on the 25th of January. He is arrested on the 5th of August 1962. So between the 25th of January and the 5th of August of that year before he's arrested, he spends a significant amount of time in Amichi's house. Namdi Azikiwe was asked to harbor, to harbor, keep him safe. Keep Mandela <laughs> safe. Yeah. Um and he house house. Harbor is good. 
How, yeah, but I feel like people you say how about a criminal, but he's not a criminal. He's yeah. a wanted man by like a criminal government. So yeah. I don't know the word to use, but everything uh, is made up, especially, especially laws. Yeah. So Amechi says that they wanted to um, house Mandela with someone who was like relatively intellectual, someone that could well, keep up with them. Yeah, someone he could talk to and actually chill with. But Mandela. So they didn't keep him with a passenger. <laughs> <laughs> Obasanjo is the smart guy, um, but he's not intellectual. Is he? Um, yeah, I think Obasanjo was still in Ota farming at this point in time. Don't look at me like that. He was in the army now. Amechi is from Inigo. He was newly married. He was in his 20s. Mandela was in, is in his 40s. He had just recently formed Mkuntu Wisizwe, or MK, which was the armed wing of the ANC, the African National Congress. I think it's very important for people to understand that. There's a 40-year-old guy who two years ago had, was like, not even two years ago, probably earlier that year, was in the countryside of South Africa watching controlled detonations. Yeah. <laughs> Mandela was not the Mandela that comes out of prison in 94. He was very militant, wasn't he? He was very, very militant. But he was also very well-educated. I believe he's the first or one of the first black lawyers in South Africa's history. He comes from a royal family, so he was also like upper class. Not upper class, but within black society, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. So yeah, like Mandela is this, I guess like an elite. He's militant, intelligent. Do you know what Mandela's, do you know what Mandela's middle name is? means? What, Madiba? No. <laughs> His middle name, I can't even pronounce it, but it's basically Roli Hala Ha. Roli Hala, or something weird like, I don't know. But basically, it's Zosa, and it means troublemaker. It's, it's Kosa. Kosa? Yes. Yeah. Kosa? Yeah. And it means troublemaker. Kosa. I can't it's, say that. <laughs> it's Kosa, and it means troublemaker. Was that his original? That's, his, that's what he was named. Are you sure? Yeah. Mm. I just looked it up. That is beautiful. So yeah, it's just interesting. But like he, then his clan name is Madiba, so that's like the name his clan gave him like many years later. Okay, that's why I know him as Madiba. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, this is this guy is hanging out in Amechi's house. Mind you, the South African police is killing South Africans everywhere, especially in Southern Africa. South Africans are in hi- hiding, They're being killed everywhere. But Nigeria was like, come all the way up here to the west. We got you. So Mandela stays. So that is true. He actually invited Amechi to his inauguration in 1994. But unfortunately for Amechi, this was during the Abacha regime. And Abacha would not give him permission to attend Nelson Mandela's inauguration. He also personally thanked Amechi. He would write him from prison. And he thanked him when he came to Nigeria in May of 1990, right after his release. So when Mandela was released from prison, he went to thank certain countries and Nigeria was one of the first countries he thanked. He came here, he was received and he personally thanked Murtala Mohammed. He thanked Miriam Bambangida for nice. personally clothing Winnie Mandela when the apartheid regime would not even let her work. He says that Nigerians offered to take care of his children and educate them and send them to school when there were parts, there were times when they could not even go to school. Um, He said that when he was in prison, lots of people and countries around the world were calling for his arrest. The Nigerians and the Nigerian government called for his, sorry, called for his release. But that Nigerians and the Nigerian government called for his release louder. He said coming to Nigeria was like coming home. He said landing at the Murtala Mohammed airport, because at this point in time, Murtala had been assassinated in the failed Dimka coup. 
So he said that landing in the airport named after Murtala Mohammed, after everything Murtala had done for South Africans and the anti-apartheid movement and Pan-Africanism in general, mm-hmm. was a very emotional moment for him. His granddaughter during the, uh, I think, 2004 xenophobic attacks uh, in South Africa, like after that, said that it is a shame that South Africans are not aware of how much Nigerians did for South Africa during the anti-apartheid movement and that she was personally grateful to Nigeria and Nigerians. Um, and I believe like the South African envoy also said same. Mbeki had said similar. So yeah, that happened. Um, in So this is like the 60s, right? So Mandela was not the only important South Africa who hid in Nigeria. <laughs> You're laughing now. <laughs> it's an interesting setup. Keep going. It has an interesting setup. Yeah. Right for Mbeki. Yeah. Mbeki is so important, and he was had he was chilling in 1004. I mean, where else? On Victoria Island, he was going to shrine with King and Papa Ganaki Kigibe or whoever would take him to go and see Felai. In one of his biographers, like he went to go and see Felai in his underpants, smoking. What did he call this thing? So. <laughs> There is a chapter in, um, there's a book called A Legacy of Liberation, Tabo Mbeki and the Future of the South African Dream. It's by Mark Javitha, or Gavitha, do not know how to pronounce that. But there is a chapter called Nigeria, the real Africa. It talks about how after Mbeki was found in Swaziland here, essentially escaped to Nigeria and lived in Nigeria for about a year. Um, He arrived in Nigeria in January of 1976 and he stays here for a year. And so it talks about Mbeki because Mbeki went to Sussex with Baba Ghana Kingube. In case anybody doesn't know who that is, is he's a man that has been relevant for a very, very long time. He's currently part of the Buhari Cabal. Yeah. He served under Obasanjo in his military regime. He was important in helping the ANC get uh, legitimized or like seen as legitimate by the Nigerian government in the 70s. He must have been part of the Murtala OBJ regime also. He was also part of Obasanjo's civilian. He also taught, his wife also taught Mbeki's wife how to make Nigerian chow. And Mbeki loved it. Interesting. This is, I just feel like I should just drop that there. But yeah, man, uh, Mbeki. So for anyone who doesn't know, Shabo Mbeki was Nelson Mandela's vice president. And uh, Mandela only served one term as president and Mbeki succeeded him as president. And he, he became South Africa's second black president or second president after apartheid. Um, he also formed a very close friendship, a close friendship with Obasanjo, who... By the way, was the first black non-South African that was allowed to see Nelson Mandela in prison. Obasanjo has lived many lives. He has. He's, like, he's been that guy. He has been that guy. And it's so, for me, it's really confusing. I, was, I read something where Obasanjo was talking about how, how Nelson Mandela was only present for one term. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Nelson told him, like, you know, no man should be president for too long, especially at my age. And he talks so like well about this, and he talks about Nelson Mandela talking to him about the importance of democracy and stuff like that. And 
you even see like Mandela was uh, he had an effect on OBJ what I don't know like I mean OBJ OBJ could be packaged like OBJ is <laughs> no 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 OBJ is one of the most like personality wise I think he is one of the most complex leaders that we have had in this country 100% He's a very very interesting man but for me I was just wondering like OBJ is saying all this stuff about Mandela only serving one term at EC. Mm. Um, this was after Mandela died. So, this was after OBJ tried to go for three terms. Mm. Like, it, his brain must hold so much, <laughs> so much contradicting, <laughs> so much contradictory, like, knowledge, information, and thought processes. Because I was just like, what is he saying? Yeah, like, it's crazy. Um, I know, yeah, I hope. I hold OBJ partly responsible for why we're not big brothers anymore, but the real person who really fudges this up is the current president. Of course, you know, say his name. Say his name. I don't want to. I'm having a good day. I feel like I'm real sorry. Okay, well, the guy who was our dictator from 83 to 85, the guy who's our president as of today in 2022 quite possibly single-handedly one of the worst things ever happened to this country no he is impressively he's impressively terrible like he's impressively catastrophic that's actually the word Mm. i was reading something about how part why the flooding partly why the flooding is so bad in nigeria and by the way if anyone is not aware there's really really bad flooding going on in parts of nigeria now that is killing people destroying properties that is decimating whole communities right now destroying food or food like the, the price of food is about to skyrocket because of it and part of why the flooding is so bad like everything is not just natural oh it's rainy season and the, like the flooding is absolutely insane and it's partly because buhari in 84 did not complete a part of a damn project. Yeah. You know what? I mean. So basically, um, when the Lagdo Dam was built, the deal was for Nigeria and Cameroon to work together to control the water release from the dam. But Nigeria never invested in its part of the project, right? Mm-hmm. And guess what year the um, Dancing Hausa Dam project was supposed to start as the Nigerian side of it? Um, it was 1980 well it was planned in 1980 it was designed in 1982 and the project was supposed to start in 1984 and then a certain president started ruling president in, in general dictator <laughs> and yeah yeah like they just ignored it essentially his incompetence from 40 years ago is haunting us now his incompetence from now is hopefully will not haunt us 40 years from today like he is so scarily incompetent and honestly like someone said someone literally said was it not Femi who was the who was his um, talk person spokesman came out and said Nigeria will miss Buhari and I was like that is a curse <laughs> like how can you swear for us do you know what it is to say that we will miss this that we will look back at this and think this was a good time oh god forbid it's funny because um, even the days of Jonathan, I look back and I don't remember them fondly. As bad as the Buhari days became, 
Honestly. Yeah, it was bad is bad. Bad is bad. So, 1976, and Becky is in Lagos, right? But something very important happens in 76 in South Africa. You have... What's that? The Soweto Uprisings. Oh, yes. um, Where you have... You know... There's another thing. This is, this is like the thing like with the women's protest versus about women's riots. Because obviously, the West, you see Soweto riots. Because mm. obviously, black people only be rioting. But it was the Soweto uprisings. And it was led by school children. Like really young kids. Because they tried to make Africans their language of like education. Can you imagine this? Like obviously, the students mostly speak their languages and English. And Afrikaans, which is the language of Afrikaners, who were the, pl- the Nationalist Party, the people who were doing the apartheid, they wanted to make their nationalize their language or whatever, oppress black people to the point of eradicating even their languages and their culture. Mm. Nothing surprising then. So black school children started, you know, a movement. And South African police opened fire on school kids, like young young children live bullets against 14 and 12 and 10 year olds uprisings began on the morning of 16th of june 1976 in response to this you had a renewed movement in nigeria at this point in time mortella has been assassinated obasanjo's president obasanjo starts the south african relief fund which civil servants would donate two percent of their salary every single month Nigerian civil servants would donate 2% of their salary every single month to South African Relief Fund for South Africans. Nigerian students started their own organizations where they would donate money. Nigerian schools like universities became full with South African students. You had Nigeria giving $5 million a year to the ANC and the PAC, which is the Pan-African Congress, which is another Mm. black-led movement within South Africa. And this five million does not even include the special financial allocations for the OAU's Liberation Committee and expenses borne by the National Committee Against Apartheid. And this five million also does not even include the South African Relief Fund that I just explained. So this is an additional five million. You had Obasanjo sending personal money out of his salary every single month. I think it was like $3,000 every single month out of his salary to the South African Relief Fund. He had members of his cabinet also skimming off of their own salaries to the South African Relief Fund. So this all happens in 76. There's an Olympics boycott of 1976. And Nigeria is part of this boycott where more than 20 African and Arab countries withdraw from the games in protest due to New Zealand being allowed to participate. Yeah. So this is all 76 and Becky comes in 77. So he comes right after this January 77. Also in 77, there is a UN conference against apartheid. It was the largest global gathering of its kind at that time. It was in Nigeria. It was opened by Obasanjo in Nigeria. Wow. Yeah, and his aim was to enforce an arms embargo on South Africa that three months later would be ratified by the entire UN General Assembly. By the way, just an aside, I want to know that there was an arms embargo on South Africa from 77, but you still had Israel and undercover France supplying them with arms, helping them with their nuclear development. You also had US trying to find their way around that, so... I mean, 
the world the world as it is the west will always side with the west and you're like that's what the apartheid government banked on like they would tell the west we are one of you and South Africa was an important trade route for America, for America to get oil from the Middle East and from Asia. Like, you know, the ships would go down the Cape, you know, stop in South Africa and then go up to America and Europe. Criminal. You know what's really interesting about this is as um, pro-West as this part of the world is, I think about how um, black South Africa was then very anti-West. Um, to the point yeah. where, you know, members of the ANC and you know other um, anti-apartheid you know movements would send their young people to Moscow to receive training, including Mandela, including including Mandela and Becky as well. In fact, Becky, <laughs> Becky was sent to the Lenin Institute to learn about Marxism and you know Leninism and communism and all of that, and he excelled. And because it was a secrecy thing, they all had like code names and Becky's code name was Jack Fortune. Jack Fortune. That was the name he chose to study. Jack in Fortune. Yes. I love that. I love that. And I feel like it's not even fair to say that they were anti West. They were anti oppression. And yeah. at that point in time, the, the West oppressors was, were the West. Yeah, the West was very pro oppression. They were so pro oppression. America was helping Portugal fight like for their colonies in Africa. Like this imagine at this same time you have in the 60s like that is when the civil rights movement is in entering like a second gear in america 60s and 70s right like how can you just always be on the wrong side it's just it's wild like consistently on the wrong side like france we're gonna get into france shortly but they are just they're bad Mm -hmm. so i feel like it's it's unfair to say Okay, for example now, how you say that, okay, they just want to be communists or whatever. When Angolans were fighting to be liberated from the Portuguese, who helped them? <laughs> who helped them? Mm-mm, say. Yeah, I mean... Say the name now. Why I, you not, why I, you I mean, I, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to travel, so, you know. <clears throat> no, it was, it, it's really, it's Nigeria. It's, um... Big Brother, it's... It was Nigeria, Cuba, Moscow, and the Soviet Union. Soviet Union, Nigeria, Cuba. um, And this is all, you know, and also this is during Cold War era, so we can't forget America's also now starts entering our matters to try and fight proxy wars within the African continent. Have nothing to do with them, just to beat Russia. I mean, if you think about the fact that, like, the fact that Cuba is a country today is a testament of just pure grit. Because America, like, the embargo is still on. Guy, our first episode, we talk about how many times they try and kill Fidel. I mean, no, I mean, just the country. They've tried to destroy Cuba so many times, just economically, with all these sanctions and the PR and everything. Are you really trying to travel? Is that why you're on a quiet? No, no, no. I'm just joking. Did you apply for visa recently? I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I should be saying all the bad words. I don't need visa. No, sometimes I just deep it. Like, what's a time time we live in? You know, I mean, the fact that till today, in majority of America, the word communism has a negative connotation is so interesting. Because it's just a term to describe how someone sees the world. And for them, it's a term to describe a terrorist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a 
there's a point in time when like for me another thing is like i mean when i'm american too i've lived in america for a significant amount significant amount of my adult life uh i was either living in america or visiting america and there is like this uh american exceptionalism that runs through the veins of every american and as like they are the center of the universe like so what is bad for america is bad for the world like what is good for americans is what is good for the world like they are the arbiters of good and bad or good and evil or whatever yeah and they also see themselves as the most important country and this the most important thing in the world and obviously it has to do with money the reason why south africa was allowed like the reason why the west propped up white south africa is because it was profitable to oppress black people yep it is absolutely profitable it is profitable to control the trade routes for oil it's profitable to control the diamond mines in south africa it's profitable to control the minerals in central africa it is the oil, profitable the oil in angola it's, it's uh, profitable <laughs> to control how can henry kissinger the secretary of state in america tell an oil company to hold a hundred million dollars that belong to angola from angolan oil in an escrow account because america did not recognize the mpla as a legitimate government after the portuguese left america is telling not an american oil company america is telling an oil company drilling for oil in angola to hold money that's for angolans in an account and who was able to get it out Nigeria. Nigeria. Nigeria said if you don't release that money, yeah. <laughs> don't release that before I, before, I clo- before I open my eyes. If you don't release that money. <laughs> you know one, one of my favorite Nigerians is that if it's sure for you, keep it. Hold it. Hold it. Hold if it. it's like, we, usually you have downstream uh, Guinea or you have upstream we have assets, assets in, Nigeria. in Nigeria. You have assets in Nigeria. Worth billions of dollars. Worth billions of dollars and you are holding Angola's money hostage because america is telling you to Majala mohammed told kissinger that you should not come to my country kissinger said he's coming and Majala said if you like land that plane i couldn't land the plane if you like are you bluffing do you think i'm a joke am i a joke to you i said don't come to my country you're telling me i'm the secretary of state of america i'm going to come <laughs> are, you, are you crazy i'm honestly like kissinger is that's that's it that's that's one person i'm not even gonna yeah. get into but yeah. at, one, at one point in time they were talking about the president um of chad and his his response was apparently what's chad the u.s ambassador to zambia robert good is reported to have once said of all the areas in the world only antarctica is less important to america than africa this was in the 60s and then we got oil and suddenly and suddenly, suddenly the hands are all up in our pockets in our business how in our politics in our it, ki- killing mean, people with poison toothpaste trying to kill someone with poison toothpaste i mean if you if you if you think about you know just going back to this angola thing what gerald ford sent a letter to all the heads of states in africa Ad- advising quote unquote advising them how to vote yeah. at the OAU 
he, he sent them letters advising them how to vote and this guy basically photocopied the letter for every different head of state he didn't even write them personal letters he photocopied the same letter and sent it to different African heads of state telling them how to vote and Mutala Mohammed just took his letter on stage and he tore it in front of the whole union before he gave a speech that and you know what I feel like after that speech they had to kill him that's what everyone thinks yeah that's actually because he was he only lived for 37 days after he gave that speech insane he only lived for 37 days after he gave that speech um and and the the dimka coup failed i mean you know what we'll talk about the dimka coup later because i find the dimka coup as uh, a very interesting coup i mean all of the coups are interesting but that one is a very confusing one for me I guess it would make sense if America was involved. So there's a quote from Joseph Wyas, who was the Senate president in Shehu Shagari's government. Um, this is from his PhD. I read his dissertation. He, talk, he talks about Nigeria's uh, role, leadership role in Africa. And he says, Most Africans would agree that the former Nigerian head of state, Murtala Mohammed, with his open rebuff of U.S. President Ford in the Angolan affair, did more to enhance the African image than nearly a century of African civility towards Europe. He says, he basically goes on to say that Nigeria, Nigerians and other African nations, these new toddler nations at this point in time, were all less than 20 years old. And he's just like, you're making a mistake to be guarded about the displeasure the displeasure of the west like this civility or this servile attitude that has been educated into us as colonial subjects must be put to an end and that you and honestly the example of Martella's Africa has come of age speech is a very good one because that rebuff of the US what could the US do in 1974 nearly for, around 46% of America's um imports from africa 40 of the total imports was nigerian oil they were relying like they were reliant on us i, I said this on the, at the live show that there was a there was a time when the uk pound fell the british pound fell because there was speculation that nigeria would no longer use the pound as its reserve colony um currency mm. we this uh, idea of us just completely being reliant on the west is literally something that has been educated into us and then reinforced by some policies and some newer things that have happened but if you look into our past you would see that there have been times where not only have we stood on our own but we have stood for others and done so exceedingly well and for anyone who who's wondering like what's this angolan question what's this angolan crisis angola was a portuguese colony portugal has had at this point in time a dictator what's his name again it was salazar yes salazar what year was he killed 1970 so when salazar falls in 1970 um portugal's control of its colonies also goes into disarray and portugal basically withdraws out of angola without any type of transition government any type of plan like this up and leave one day and you have three different angolan parties which have been fighting for liberation for years you have the mpla 
you have the FNLA and you have UNITA. And FNLA and UNITA were Western supported. They were supported by the US and South Africa. Originally, Murtala Mohammed actually wanted all three to kind of form a coalition government until they get to the table and they realize uh, the FNLA guy is a CIA dot, like plug. And UNITA ha- ha- is getting arms from the apartheid regime of South Africa. So, like, bro, you cannot back your enemies. Mr. Shash made an important thing, to, made an important comment, though, which I think I should definitely add here, which is that during the Nigerian civil war, which preceded this, Biafra was supported by South Africa and Israel. True. And Murtala Mohammed very infamously was support was a part of the nigerian military machine um so was the support of the mpla a situation of the enemy of my enemies my friend because the mpla had marxist leanings nigerian leaders at that time were not necessarily uh socialist or communist in their leanings but they were pro-black and pro-african so this is actually why we were going back and forth on stage is that what are their motivations here is it the pro-blackness the pan-africanism is it the anti-apartheid uh motivation anti-white minority rule motivation mm. um is it that based is it like a remnant of the the support for Biafra, like the anger against the support for Biafra. Um, this gets really. I, I think I'm going too deep into this, but I, I'm not really scratching the surface yeah. here. But uh, there's a lot of complexities there. Obviously, Nigeria was supporting uh, the anti-apartheid movement before the Biafra war, and mm-hmm. I talk about things we did in the '60s. But it really, really gets our support for South Africa kicks into high gear. A bit with Gwon, but mostly with Murtala and then the Obasanjo regime. And Obasanjo used to call his regime the Obasanjo Murtala regime after his former boss who had just been killed. Um, and he would hang like, you know, those portraits that they do with the leaders. It would be portraits of the two of them. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, he wanted to like keep his memory alive. Um, so that is a little bit of a just, I would say like an intro into some of nigeria's big brother activity during uh the anti-apartheid movement you have you know 77 you have Festag, you have nigerian embassies um given hundreds of passports to south Af- black south africans who are trying to escape the country you have hundreds of south africans being educated in nigeria being hidden in nigeria you have millions of dollars going out to south africa you have soft you have diplomacy so you have your soft and your hard you have soft diplomacy where we're in the UN, we're chairing the UN Special Committee on Apartheid from the day it was created in 1963 till 1994 after Nelson Mandela became president. Nigeria chaired the committee. Nigeria sponsored a lot of the resolutions which were going against the apartheid government. Um, Nigeria sent foot soldiers to Angola. Nigeria was training South Africans. Even South Africans who came to Nigeria, Nigeria I, this was one of the weirdest things I read in the Becky thing. Yeah, you had like South African students who came to Nigeria, who Nigerian men helped fund their training either like with Russia or with Palestine. 
Who then saw action in Lebanon? What year? What year in was 1980. this? 1980. Okay. Which that's just. I mean, for me, like I don't even know. And so you obviously see here black and brown alliances around the world it's kind of one of those things where i can't remember who says it but if if you're oppressed somewhere then we're all oppressed who says that is it mlk like i mean lots of people have said that like basically like, different variations of that yeah. and even in this speech in if you if you youtube it you'd actually find a uh, mandela's welcome in 1990 mm. and if you read Mortella's africa has come of age speech which was written by ambassador adeniji who's a diplomat you would see this notion that we cannot say that we are now independent of colonization or colonialists if our brothers in southern africa are under the thumb of white minority rule and nigeria even used its power to help threaten they hold hostage so that zimbabwe could have free and fair elections it was <laughs> it was shogun shagari's government <laughs> no it's funny because we also this is when we nationalize bp because bp wow like the criminality, or people criminalities, one of the first to be corrupt, one of the first to be, let me tell you something, Jagari's government obviously is known to be, the people who really brought that corruption to Nigeria to a very uh, interesting level, Cheo Jagari's government, Umar Diko was part of this government, this is why Buhari then tries to kidnap him. In 79, I believe, between like 79 80, British Petroleum was involved in swap deals, where in the middle of the North Sea, they will swap oil. Like they will take Nigerian oil and swap it with other oil that they already have. Yeah. And then now take that oil and sell it to South Africa. Because Nigeria had placed an embargo. Imagine us placing an embargo on South Africa for years, decades at this point in time, or nearly two decades at this point in time. And you are doing this oil swap so you can still sell oil to South Africa at a premium. And Nigeria first nationalized it. And put pressure on the British government to allow free and fair elections in Zimbabwe. Essentially, they were using their oil might and they were like, Backlist is gone. BP is gone. Want to touch our oil? Leave Zimbabwe. Let Zimbabweans vote for their president. Obviously, that president then becomes Mugabe. That mm. one can be a different conversation. <laughs> but share, share their president. You will share their president and they shall vote him in. So, this is Sheo Shagari's government. Obviously, Sheo Shagari's government is then stopped by. Stopped in his tracks by Muhammadu Buhari. Buhari does his little coup in 83. And the rest is history. The rest is history. But <laughs> I want you to guys to say that all these things that I'm talking about, all this money goes to South Africa, South African students come in, passports, training, help, even clothes, whatever. 83 to 85. Quiet. Not only is it quiet. Barry starts working with people who were anti-black. It's so strange. People who were anti... He, he's always... I mean, no, let's not talk about that. Anyways. Buhari leaves in 85. By 86, Nigeria and Ghana lead the boycott of the 1986 Commonwealth Games. Um, in 1986, that's also when Obasanjo visits Mandela in jail. But yeah, man, those games, Sha, in 86, they really pained, they pained the UK because the Commonwealth Games in 86 were in Edinburgh. So Margaret Thatcher actually brought herself to Nigeria after that. And she was like, if you relax on all this noise about apartheid and South Africa and sanctions, you will relax on your national debt. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, no, we c- I can go on for years about this, but we're not going to do that. We're going to stop here and we're going to talk about France. So for most of the 20th century, France was recruiting black Africans to fight in the French army, usually forcibly. Men from French colonies in Africa would fight its battles around the world. 
From the First World War in 1914 to the indo Wars and Algeria's fight for independence in the 1950s and 60s, hundreds of thousands of African soldiers fought under the French flag. They also fought, as we mentioned, in World War II. They were called tiradillos, or sharpshooters, a name that was meant to mock their limited training. Right. So they called them sharpshooters because they weren't officially trained by the military? Yeah, so they were not sharpshooters. Like, it's <laughs> it's so s- sick. And it's vile. It's so sick because you're literally sending these men to death. Around 40% of the French troops that were fighting for France in France and Italy during World War II were from their black African colonies. They were these tyrannies. So these men will come from Senegal, Gabon, Benin, Togo, Chad, Mali, Central African Republic, ETC. When the liberation of Paris happened, a significant number of the French troops that were fighting were black Africans. By the way, during the war, there were 200,000 black African tirailleurs who fought for France. Around 40,000 died. Jeez. That is a, that's an extremely high amount of deaths, but also a high rate of death. 40,000 out of 200,000? That's significant. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's like, what, 20%? 20%. So, yeah. So, a lot of them were fighting for France in France and Italy and other places during World War II. When the liberation of Paris happened, a lot of the troops were black Africans. The Nazis were defeated. They were kicked out. And then the Americans host a victory parade with Charles de Gaulle, who was leader of the French Free French Army at that time. And they literally keep all the Africans away from the pictures. There was a previous prisoner of war who had been held by Nazi, who was an officer in this Chirallier army, who gets threatened with a gun because he is mistakenly in a picture with Charles de Gaulle, because he attends the parade. The parade celebrating what he had just done. That's crazy. So you just like shoot him away. like Shoot him with a gun. After risking it, like, like the day before, the week the earlier that week he had been risking his life. I sent you the picture, Abby. Yeah, 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 I saw the picture. Isn't he like injured also? Yeah. Like he's still literally injured in the picture. From the war. From the liberation. Is there any white community in the world that doesn't have extensive racist history? Um white is a racist concept itself. Whiteness is a racial construct. It's something that was constructed, I want to say it in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. Now I'm gonna talk about the Tiaroria massacre, which I think is one of the worst things. That has ever happened but you know about this so you can talk about it um right, so the theory theory the theory mm-hmm. yeah. massacre was a massacre of french west african military vets by the french forces on the morning of the 1st of december 1944 west african volunteers and conscript conscripts of the West African volunteers and conscripts of the Senegalese units of the French army mutinied against the poor conditions and the pay that they didn't receive at the Thierry camp. And between 35 to 3,300 people were killed. Now think about it like this. These guys just fought for the French um, Liberation Front. They helped free Paris and they were, prom- they were promised a certain amount of money. The French government decided, look, we're not going to pay you that money. 
Or what if we paid you? Imagine being promised three hundred pounds and receiving three hundred naira. That was exactly what the French government did. They changed it to the local currency. As colonial subjects, Tyrolians, you know, the infantry, they were not awarded the same pensions as their French counterparts, and this led to a mutiny of about one one thousand three hundred of them. They were rightly upset, so they went to camp. Thierry on the 30th of November 1944 and this was a group of people that were actually from Guinea, Mali, Senegal, Burkina Faso, Chad, Benin, Gabon, Ivory Coast and yeah sorry Central um, African Republic and Togo. The you know and a lot of them had been former prisoners of war a lot of them had been you know a lot of them saw people they loved die their friends their families and you know, Why like, their families now? Their families are not that nasty. Bro. No, no, but like you know, people are going in with their brothers, their cousins to fight. Enough, yeah. Enough. So the, you know, it's people they know and, and love. being forced to do this. Being also. forced, yeah, and they are being conscripted. At, like really, a lot of them are underage as well. Like, yeah. So that's remember when um they said that about the burner boys? Is it hey Burma? Burma. First of all, on stage I said Burma. <laughs> now I'm saying burner boys. Yeah. <laughs> it's Burma. Correction. Remember when Mr. Shashara said that like the British recruitment guys would come to the chief of a village and be like, I need a hundred soldiers. And he's like, I don't have a hundred men who are willing to fight from Agoewi or something. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the British guy was like, okay, if you don't have a hundred men, I heard you have seven sons. So yeah, I can just take those. Yeah, it was really what? like that. <laughs> what? It was really like that. So yeah, um, these guys, you know, they had their mutiny, they protested and I say, and the, the military, the French military was like, you know what, we hear you and this is what is going to happen. They shot and killed between 30 and 300 and then a military tribunal sentenced some of the survivors to 10 years in prison. Five of those survivors died in detention. The French president, Vincent Auriol, he visited Senegal in March 1947. And then the rest of the prisoners were freed, but they didn't receive their pensions. So they didn't receive any pensions for the war. Now you have to think about it like this. Like 40,000 of them died. In a room full of 200,000, 40,000 people died. That means everyone lost someone. Everyone lost someone. 40,000 died World War II. 30,000 died World War One. We don't even know how many died in Indochina. It's part of the people who they sent to Indochina is uh, Kenina. Jean-Bidel Bokassa. I can't remember. Yeah. That's where he fathers his Vietnamese daughter. Mm, so this goes back to that. Yeah. It's like them literally just sending people all over the world to fight their battles, die. Don't worry, you guys. The British did it with us too. Yeah. So the Burma boys are the Nigerian... The Nigerian conscripts who fought in World War Two. Yeah. And they were sent to the you know the jungles of Burma and um, India actually, but let's focus on Burma. Um, they were put in the jungle because the British found that the Japanese were really hard to fight. They were very um, because it was the jungle, it was commando tactics, and the British weren't used to that. So they sent a bunch of Nigerian men to die in the jungle. But we went there and we thrived. We actually found that Nigerians were really good at commando warfare and we eventually won. After the war, Nigerians were... A bunch of things happened. One, we were sent back to Nigeria. Two, there were no officers. No, There were no Nigerian officers promoted in the army. So every single Nigerian that fought in World War II fought at the level of soldier. Like, it, just not nothing else. No officer, no ranking, nothing. In fact, the first Nigerian officer to be ranked in the British Army was a man named Basi. And that happened in 19... 49 which is four years after the war 
ended <clears throat> now um the interesting thing is after world war ii a lot of nigerians had this very i mean obviously there were people that weren't happy with pre-colonial with you know that pre-colonial rule or colonial rule sorry um a lot of people weren't happy with it but a general a generally high amount of the population were actually very pleased with themselves not pleased but they thought that you know the Yumu people were benevolent and generous and they were just there to you know lift them with christianity and all of that but after world war ii that changed you know the way they were treated after the war the lack of pensions the lack of recognition nigerians were very pissed and a lot of those uh, a lot a lot of that angst and rage led to you know the kinder that led to the fire that's fueled you know us fighting for independence yeah and like as i said like, this also helps like this is why the you know late 50s and six like you have the 50s up so after the war between 45 and 1960 you have the civil rights movement happening in america because you have black americans who had fought in world war ii also facing coming back home and facing oppression in a very different way as they had before they left for war you have uh also you have the liberation and independence movements happening all over Africa. Now, something that was really frustrating for the Tiraliers um, after the non-payment of wages is that after they helped liberate Paris, um, Paris went back to business as usual, mm. and the French decided to go on this program that they called the Blanchiment, which was the bleaching of the French army. The whiteout in the autumn of 1944 when the reconquest of france had become a, apparent general charles de gaulle had 15000 tiraliers replaced by soldiers from the french forces who were white so the french sorry so the <laughs> africans had helped the french liberate themselves from a racist repressive system i.e the rule of law, the nazis and as thanks, they decided to continue their own racist, repressive system mm. and do a little blanchiment. Sent them home without payment. And then after the war, they just went back to life as normal. Like, yeah. as you said, how the British went back to life as normal. And then the Terrellians have to go back home and be treated like dirt because. So, like, even Senghor, who was the first president of Senegal, said, called the Tiralios the black watchdogs of the empire. Yeah. They were not liked at home. They were not respected abroad. They had fought and suffered, mostly not even voluntarily. Yeah. And they have now probably oh, have PTSD. They, yeah. They come back to a country that hates them. Bro. Like, so no one... Ro- no one rocks with them, essentially. Like, you're fighting for the white man? Couldn't be me. Could not be me. <laughs> and it, it's, so, it's so sad. I mean, it depend, and it also depended on which country they were from. They were fed differently in Guinea than Senegal, than, you know, Benin or Togo. But still, like, it's such a sad thing. And then, what year did France finally give them equal wages? Guess. Guess. Are you, have you guessed? Do you have a guess in your head? Well, it's wrong because the year was 2014. Yes. In 2014, 28 
of these former tirailleurs were recognized were recognized in a ceremony in France and they were given French citizenship 28 out of 200,000 many of them were from Senegal and i want you to understand that Senegal had sent more than one third of all its military aged men to France to fight during World War 1 mm. more than a third of all youth do you know that what do you know that does for like farming and agriculture what that does for dating and family structure yeah. what that does for population growth <sighs> so anyways anyways they finally give some of them a uh, veterans citizenship the youngest one who was honored was 78 at the time and Francois Hollande said that they had paid a debt of blood it took 65 years 65 years to honor these men insane nigeria's a life expectancy is not even 65 years old <laughs> ami reached 65 yet and check might be 65 for men and 66 for women actually women live longer which especially if the men are dying first it's 54 for men. <laughs> 54.6 years that's not funny it's not funny that's not funny but i suppose it's an average right so um if we look at um in a life ex- like life expectancy is it's going to be an average of male and female yeah it'll probably be like 54 54 56 like it's definitely not up to 60 shot. The difference is usually like one or two years I think yeah. with our numbers because I, I I looked at the world. But yeah man that is what the France the hey that is what France did in uh to their black African soldiers. Mm. We haven't even touched what they did in Algeria. If I touch what they did in Algeria we will sleep, wake up, sleep again, wake up again. We we'll never have touched anything. We're bad. No, they're bad. Uh, evil, evil people. Anyway, um <laughs> that's it is episode. No, 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 that's not a good note to touch. On. You know what? Yeah. I'm going to say uh to every single person who came out to the live show, thank you. Thank you so to much. To everyone who shared it, thank you. Everyone who got a ticket, thank you. We cannot tell you how much we appreciate it. It means the world to us. We had a blast. Um and we hope to do more in the future and we hope to hit you guys with some juicy 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 history goth every week uh thanks for sharing keep liking and you know sharing it on social media it means a lot it helps us go really far thank you so much oh take care of your mental health follow us at the dirty lie podcast on instagram and at dirty lie pod on Twitter this has been Dez MT enjoy your week bye